Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Tensions are high in one of the world's most strategic regions after attacks on two tankers near the Persian Gulf. The United States claims Iran carried out the suspected coordinated attack on the Japanese and Norwegian-owned ships. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told Face the Nation that a military response against Iran is just one possibility. The United States is considering a full range of options. We are confident that we can take a set of actions that can restore deterrence. Behind the scenes, is there any kind of direct diplomacy taking place between the U.S. and Iran? There is no direct contact now. That ended when President Trump exited the nuclear agreement. He thought he could get a better deal. So far, that hasn't panned out. The president sent a message to the Supreme Leader last week offering to begin talks. It was rejected. Iran is now threatening to restart its nuclear program. So as this lack of contact continues, you're looking at the risk of miscalculation getting greater. Bill Burns was a career Foreign Service officer who served as Deputy Secretary of State from 2011 to 2014. He is the author of the recent book, The Back Channel. Jim Miller is a longtime expert on defense issues who served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2012 to 2014. I worked closely with both Bill and Jim on the Deputies Committee of President Obama's National Security Council, where we dealt with many difficult foreign policy and national security issues. With tensions rising to dangerous levels in the Middle East, I wanted to bring together Bill and Jim to talk about Iran, U.S. policy toward Iran, where it might go next, and most importantly, where it should go next. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a special edition of Intelligence Matters. Bill, Jim, welcome to Intelligence Matters. Bill, this is your second time on the show. Great to have you back. It's a pleasure. And Jim, this is your maiden voyage on Intelligence Matters. So uh, great to have you, and hopefully we'll get you back again. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. So we're going to talk about a very important issue here, where we are with the Iranians at this moment. But I should say that the three of us served together on the Deputies Committee of the National Security Council. Um, We spent a lot of time together in the Situation Room. In fact, we spent a lot of time talking about Iran. In fact, we probably spent more time talking about Iran than, than anything else. So Think about this as a mini-deputies meeting um, without Thank Dennis you. McDonough or Tony Blinken. Thank <laughs> you. Those two years were the best 10 years of my life. 
So to kick this off, let me remind our listeners kind of where we are at this moment. So the Trump administration has census withdrawal from the 2015 nuclear deal. It's ramped up sanctions against the Iranians. Those sanctions are strangling the Iranian economy. The Iranians have responded in two ways. One is attacks on commercial shipping in the Persian Gulf. And the other is announcements, two announcements really. One that within a few days, within a week about, it will exceed the limit of the amount of urich uranium that it is allowed to have under the 2015 nuclear deal. And two, they've said perhaps even they'll begin enriching, enriching uranium to a higher level than one needs for nuclear power reactors, which would also be a violation of the agreement. The United States has responded to all of this by sending additional troops to the Middle East and by trying so far unsuccessfully to engage our allies to take even a harder line with Iran and impose their own sanctions over these threats to the nuclear deal and the attacks in the Persian Gulf. So that's kind of where we are. Maybe we can get started with a little history and background here. Bill, how did we get to where we are today? How would you tell that story? Well, I think, you know, for many years, certainly over the course of my whole career, three and a half decades as a diplomat, the challenge of threatening Iranian behavior um, has loomed large. In the last administration, as you said, Michael, we worked very hard um, to build an international coalition um, to increase pressure against Iran in order to prevent it from developing a nuclear weapon. Uh, we began secret talks with the Iranians in early 2013. Um, and you were it was involved in those. I was. Right. I led those in Oman and Geneva and lots of other places. It always surprises me we kept it quiet as long as we did. But, you know, it was no coincidence that the Iranians were prepared to negotiate seriously then. As a result of internationally supported sanctions, you know, their oil exports had dropped by 50 percent. The value of their currency had dropped by 50 percent. That was coercive diplomacy, which was not just about coercion. It was also about the diplomacy part. And what I fear today in the Trump administration's approach since the abandonment of the nuclear agreement a little more than a year ago is that it's a strategy that's all coercion and no diplomacy. Uh, It's a strategy where the means become an end in themselves, and they're not connected to realistic ends. And that's the real danger right now. And that's ultimately, I think, the reason that even our closest allies are so uncertain and concerned about the direction of American strategy. Jim, would you add anything to the story of how we got here? Michael, I would just add a little bit on on the coercive side, which is where the Department of Defense came in came in more as well as on the defensive side. During the the period uh, of the Obama administration, the U.S. military posture in the Middle East was not just sustained but increased, uh, both for defensive purposes and to make clear that should it come to it, the U.S. had a military option uh, and could deal with Iran's nuclear program in that way, at least could set it back. Uh, we, all, I think, agreed with the uh, assessment that if if it came to the use of military force, that Iran would be able to reconstitute its program, may go underground and make it much more difficult. The coercive side of the course of diplomacy was was strong and, and had a purpose of, of getting the Iranians to an agreement, which was successful. And just as a reminder to those listening, uh, Iran was, uh, at, at the time that the U.S. stepped back from that agreement, Iran was adhering to its provisions. And still has to this very day. 
It's true, except just as you said, Michael is beginning to indicate that it's going to move away from the agreement, which was, I'm afraid, an entirely foreseeable consequence of our decision to abandon it. So a couple of specific questions, guys. Um, Several of our allies are questioning the U.S. conclusion that Iran was behind the attacks on the tankers last week. Any doubts in your mind, Jim? Michael, I have no doubt that either Iran or Iranian proxies undertook those attacks. Uh, They may not have been directed by the Supreme Leader, but if it were the Quds Force or another element of the IRGC, it would have been directed, I I believe, by the Supreme Leader. And if it were a proxy, it would have been done with, uh, with implicit blessing and an understanding that this type of activity was allowed. So what this administration needs to do is get the evidence out on the record uh, to our allies and partners and as much as possible to the public to make that clear. Bill, any doubt in your No, mind? I agree with Jim. I think the Iranian government, the Iranian leadership was responsible for the attacks on tankers. I think they're reckless and dangerous, if unfortunately foreseeable after the abandonment of the agreement. And I think the reason that our closest allies, at least some of them, are doubtful about the evidence has less to do with the evidence itself, which I think will be pretty compelling, and more to do with their frustration, in fact, their anger over our decision to abandon the agreement, to resort to unilateral reimposition of sanctions, including the threat of secondary sanctions against their interests, and I think their concern about buying into an American strategy that can lead to a conflict that none of them want and none of them think is necessary. So in their mind, we're the ones who are responsible for bringing us to this moment. Yeah, I think at least that we bear a large share of the responsibility. None of that is to justify or exonerate Iranian actions, which are threatening in a lot of ways. But I just think we're contributing to a cycle which is not going to end well for anybody. So Secretary Pompeo said publicly late last week and then again over the weekend, something that I thought was kind of remarkable He said that Iran was responsible for an attack in Kabul that injured four U.S. service members. ISIS had first claimed responsibility for that attack, and then the Taliban claimed responsibility for it. Does the secretary's charge sound right to the two of you? Michael, it sounds credible to me, uh, given Iranian support for uh, militias within Afghanistan and indeed within Iraq, the provision of of so-called EFPs, the improvised explosive devices that have the potential to bomb, as as well as for uh, munitions that can be used to attack uh, U.S. and and our and our allies and partners forces. Uh, but once again, it's it's equally credible that it was ISIL or another another actor. And getting the evidence out, uh, not just the forensic evidence, but the intelligence to support the assessment that Iran was directly involved, not just encouraging, but directly involved, is fundamentally important. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't know what the truth is in this instance. It's certainly possible, as as Jim rightly suggested. I think the bigger problem, though, is that our credibility on Iranian issues has suffered so much with our allies that, you know, in normal cases, we wouldn't, people wouldn't be asking that question about assertions that we make. And so it's incumbent on us not only to provide hard evidence to help persuade them, but I think also to put this in the context of a much more realistic and workable strategy that can get them to buy in um, as they did in what was a successful effort to produce the comprehensive nuclear agreement. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to what, what we should be doing in a second. But just a couple more specific questions. Jim, the Iranian nuclear program. So how far 
away are they today from a nuclear weapon if they made a decision to build one? And how much would exceeding the limit on low-enriched uranium change that? In other words, how close are we to a nuclear crisis, or are we still pretty far away? Michael, I feel like turning that question back on you as (laughs) as the person who led the intelligence community on this and many other issues. In round numbers, uh, based on the on the estimates that I've seen in, and that are available in the in, in the papers, in round numbers, they're a year plus away. The agreement, the comprehensive agreement, basically left them a year away. They've been adhering to that. They're on, as you said, they're on the threshold of violating that. Uh, but they've taken steps uh, such that, uh, if anything, the timeline would be a little longer than it was at the time that they entered the agreement. So my estimate would be a year plus. Yeah, and people should remember, I, I agree with that. People should remember that when we started the negotiations with them, they were two months away. Mm-hmm. And when we started the negotiations with them, they stopped their nuclear activities. And had they continued them, they would have been in very short order a few weeks away. And so now I do think they're well over a year. And people shouldn't jump to the conclusion that just because they exceed this limit on low enriched uranium that we're somehow close to a nuclear weapon. And the only thing I would add, because I agree with both of you, is that I doubt that it's the intention of the Iranian leadership to, in a sense, go from zero to 60. I mean, I think they're going to incrementally test the limits of the agreement and exceed them to make clear that, you know, we can inflict a lot of damage on their economy with unilateral reimposition of sanctions, but they can inflict their own kind of damage and, you know, add to the fissures between us and the other partners and the nuclear agreement as well. But my sense is that they're going to do this incrementally and gradually over time. So putting all this together, how dangerous is the current situation? Is there a scenario by which you think we could get to conflict in the near term? Bill, why don't you go first? Yeah, I think the big danger, and you guys know this as well as anyone, is of inadvertent collisions that escalate very quickly. I do not think it's the intention of President Trump um, to enter into a military conflict with Iran, nor do I think it's the intention of the current Iranian leadership to do that. The problem is that, as I suggested before, is that hardliners, and there's no shortage of either in Washington or Tehran um, today, can become kind of mutual enablers as you go up an escalatory ladder and, you know, you can end up with an inadvertent collision that can escalate very quickly, especially if there's, you know, a loss of life as a result of American life as a result of, you know, an Iranian attack in the Gulf. And so that's what I worry about most is the danger of escalation right now. Could one of our allies or partners in the region take action against Iran? thinking of Saudi Arabia. I'm thinking of the Emirates. I'm thinking even of Israel. Could one of them take some sort of action here in response to these tanker attacks that could draw us into conflict? Is that something we need to worry about? Michael, it's, it's certainly something we need to worry about, and we should be having the conversations with our allies and, and partners in the region at this point uh, to coordinate our activities. And uh, at, this, at the same time that we want to uh, reduce the risk of inadvertent conflict that Bill has rightly highlighted, we need to have a a combined approach with our partners in the region to putting pressure on Iran to stay within the agreement and also to, frankly, have it pay a price for engaging in this behavior to damage shipping. It, it shouldn't get a free pass. It shouldn't get one free bite or two free bites. And we need to come together to uh, and have uh, an approach to imposing costs on Iran for this action so that they're less likely to do it in the future. 
Okay, so now we get to we get to next steps, right? And what I'd like to do is I'd like to break this down into two pieces. What you think the Trump administration is likely to do and then what you think we should do. Two different things, obviously. So, Bill, what do you think the next steps of the administration will be? What do you expect? Well, I think I would assume the next steps are going to be focused on just what Jim was talking about before. In other words, how do you try to mobilize friends and partners in defense of freedom of navigation in the Gulf, which matters to all of us, and deter the Iranians from further attacks of the sort that they conducted? And that has all sorts of different elements. You know, diplomatically, it means, you know, raising the profile of our concerns. It means, as you well know, sharing intelligence to help make our case. It means in security terms, and again, Jim can speak to this better than I can, you know, beginning to work with others on, you know, ways of, of protecting shipping in the Gulf and deterring Iranian attacks. We went through this when I was a very young diplomat working at the NSC staff in the late 1980s when the United States actually reflagged Kuwaiti tankers and put them in convoys. It's a much more complicated enterprise than sometimes people assume because it requires all sorts of capabilities that, you know, are sometimes in short supply even in the U.S. Navy in terms of minesweeping capabilities and others. Um, But those are the basic tasks in terms of the immediate challenge. The bigger question in my mind is, you know, whether or not the administration is going to develop what I would argue is a more realistic and coherent strategy because our capacity to mobilize others on the immediate problem of threats to shipping is going to depend in part on whether they have any confidence in our wider strategy, which is sorely lacking right now. Jim? Michael, I agree with everything that Bill said, and I would just add, if, as we're thinking about what the administration may do, I would be surprised if there weren't options being developed for military strikes. Uh, one category of those options would have uh, very limited strikes, somewhat analogous to the uh, action that the Trump administration undertook in April of 17 against the Shirat uh, airfield uh, in Syria after Syrian use of chemical weapons, something like 54 Tomahawk cruise missiles. There will be options for larger strikes as well. My expectation is that that would be considered, and also particularly as we've had National Security Advisor Bolton talking about uh, opening up the aperture on cyber in recent days. He's spoken about applying that first against the Russians in combating their interference in our elections in 2018 and then broadening it to go after theft of intellectual property. I'd be surprised if cyber options were not also on the table. And uh, my view is that those options should be considered. We should be looking at the full range of possibilities and options to present to the president for uh, Iran to pay a price. The choice of those options between the military options, the potential covert or clandestine options and between diplomacy and economic sanctions uh, should depend very heavily on where we can get strong international support because the next step of strikes or whatever is undertaken uh, is just one step among many. And our position, our ability to to achieve our interest and to, and to continue to have a strong uh, coalition fundamentally depends on having others on board. So let me ask you two questions, Jim. One, the difficulty of defending shipping in the Gulf if we and our allies made a decision that we are going to provide escorts or provide defense for those those commercial ships in some other way. How difficult is that, number one? And then number two, 
How difficult would even a limited strike on Iran be compared to, say, a similar strike on Syria? So on the question of defending shipping in the Gulf, on the one hand, we can increase the level of difficulty for the Iranians so that they'd be more likely to be observed, more likely to be interdicted. But the reality is if they're willing to uh, uh, hold at risk shipping across uh, not just in the Strait of Hormuz but in a, in a broader area and to the extent that they continue to use their small boats and so forth, the U.S. is unlikely to be able to prevent the type of small attacks that we've seen on the, on the two ships recently, uh, even with the escort of, sh- of shipping. What that, what that then tends you toward uh, is thinking about bolstering that level of protection but also being prepared to make clear that there will be a response and having international support for that response. On the question of uh, hitting military targets or hitting targets in Iran, uh, no question that the Iranian air defense system, both the air-based and particularly the surface-to-air-based missiles, are more extensive and likely to be more effective than in Syria. However, uh, a significant fraction of, of sea-launched cruise missiles or of standoff missiles would penetrate to a target. The question, in my mind, is not the ability to destroy a target. The question is the purpose and whether there's international support for it. Yeah. Okay, I want to get to what you all would recommend, right, to a president. But before I do that, I should have asked earlier, Bill, what's Iran's strategy here in threatening to break out of certainly a limited number of of the limitations that they face in the nuclear agreement and the attacks on shipping? What are they trying to do? I think they're trying to reduce the economic pressure that's risen so dramatically since the U.S. Um, abandoned the nuclear agreement and reimposed sanctions. I think at the same time, they're trying to do what they can to widen the fissure between us and all of our other partners in that agreement. And what that requires is a pretty careful calibration of the steps that they take so that they're strong enough to send a signal to the United States that maximum pressure is not going to end well and we need to figure out a way to engage with one another, but not so strong that they alienate all the other partners. And the danger, of course, in that is it's very easy for either them and the Iranian leadership, which have made their share of miscalculations in the past, to guess wrong. Um, about what that calibration or that balance is. Okay, so where do you guys think, if we had a deputies meeting with our old team, right, and we weren't limited in in the recommendations we could make, but we do find ourselves in the situation where a president has withdrawn from this deal and we find ourselves in the current circumstances, Mm -hmm. where do you think we would end up in the recommendations that we made to a president? Would it be to get back in the deal? How How would you think about a package of a policy approach, what would that look like? I mean, I think, Michael, uh, three things, I guess, occur to me. The first is a lot of what Jim just laid out in terms of the immediate challenge of attacks on shipping in the Gulf to try to deter further attacks and restore some sense of stability in the Gulf, which matters a lot to the global economy. Second, this is the classic diplomatic challenge of trying to construct an off-ramp, you know, both for the United States and for the Iranians, Um, to find ways in which we can signal to one another um, that there's a basis for resuming some conversation. That also happens to be a good investment in international support because, you know, a large part of our success, I think, in mobilizing international coalition over the previous two administrations on Iran 
was our willingness to demonstrate that we were prepared to engage diplomatically. And then third and not least, what I suggested before, is to begin to develop what I think has been absent so far, which is a coherent, realistic strategy. Um, Right now, even though President Trump talks about his interest in engaging with the Iranians, the actions that compose American strategy seem aimed much more at producing either the capitulation of this Iranian leadership or its implosion. I don't think either of those two are realistic aims. Um, And therefore, it'll be important to suggest that there is a basis on which, you know, we'd be prepared to re-engage on the nuclear issue to try to strengthen some of the provisions, extend the timelines in the agreement. We'd have to be prepared in a transactional arrangement to give something as well ourselves. But just to signal that you know, the 12 demands that Secretary Pompeo laid out about a year ago are not carved in stone because there's not a chance in the world, in my view, that the Iranian leadership is going to say, oh, great, I wish we had thought of that. We accept those 12 demands. Um, and then to look for sort of smaller issues on which we could engage. The Iranians, for example, could you know, begin to talk about releasing some of the Americans and Iranian-American citizens who are unjustly detained in Tehran today. We could begin quietly talking about issues like Afghanistan or Yemen, you know, areas where whether we like it or not, the Iranians have, you know, a good deal of influence as well. But we just have to resume that habit, however sharp our differences of engaging with one another. Michael, I agree with everything that Bill said, and I just add two points. First of all, we should avoid actions that will disrupt rather than bring together a coalition in support of where we want to go. And military strikes, particularly military strikes undertaken when our when our partners in the region are, and our allies and partners globally are not confident in the U.S. assessment of even what happened, would serve Iran's interests far more than American interests. That implies a question of timing. First, there's got to be further investigations as the U.N. is conducting its look. And second, it implies there's a window because of that for the U.S. to continue to have the uh, potential use of military force uh, be one of the elements that could encourage Iran to engage in serious negotiations. Point two is just that. It's to put diplomacy first. President Trump has said he wants to move towards what he would consider a better deal with Iran than the nuclear deal that Bill and others negotiated. Uh, I don't think a fundamentally better deal is plausible, but a rebranded deal with some changes, as Bill described, might be possible. In order for that to to have any real chance, uh, the single most important element is having international support uh, behind that. A credible threat of the use of force can help, but if it is employed without international support, it will be fundamentally contrary to to U.S. interest and to the prospects of doing a deal. So, Bill, we eventually got to a place with Iran where there was a deal on the nuclear issue that was possible, Mm -hmm. right? They gave a significant amount, significant limits on their program in return, essentially, for us agreeing that they had the right to enrich. That was the deal. Mm -hmm. Can you envision a deal on their regional behavior? Is there a deal that you see that's possible there? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are ways in which you could make progress on discrete regional issues. Um, You know, our interests are not necessarily entirely across purposes. I mean, Afghanistan is one issue. Um, You know, I admire the efforts that our mutual friend Zalmay Khalilzad is making and engaging with the Taliban. But there's a really important regional dimension to diplomacy there, too. The Iranians 
have a stake. They can stir up trouble in Afghanistan, but they could also contribute to a more durable outcome. They don't have an interest in an Afghanistan that's going to threaten their security as well. So I'm skeptical that you could reach some overarching agreement across a range of issues. Some are going to be extremely hard, like Syria, where I just don't think it's going to be possible uh, with any acceptable set of means on the part of the United States to dislodge the Iranians from Syria anytime soon. But there are areas, Afghanistan is one, Yemen is potentially another, where there's enough of a shared interest where you might be able to have some useful conversations with them. I agree with what Bill said, but uh, and, and at the risk of treading into his uh, territory, which he knows far better than tread, I do. Tread away. I, I, I <laughs> would, no monopoly on wisdom. <laughs> I would be very concerned about in any way uh, attempting to link progress in Afghanistan or Iraq mm. or elsewhere to work on a nuclear deal. I don't mm. think that's what Bill is suggesting yeah. by any means, that, uh, but that these things should occur in parallel. Yeah. And uh, my view is that that, that if, if you took the JCP away, if you... Uh, particularly if Iran were to agree to give up uh, indefinitely the right to enrich rather than for for a 10-year period. Uh, If you took that to the Senate, you'd have, and if the administration made a case for it, they would have a a real prospect of having a ratifiable treaty, not just an executive agreement. The JCPOA was fundamentally in U.S. interest. It had its shortcomings, including Iran's ability to enrich over time. Uh, that I believe would have been dealt with in subsequent years. Uh, This administration wants to have a treaty, not just an executive agreement. I think it's, for example, far more feasible that it could achieve that in Iran if it will pursue this path than it could vis-a-vis North Korea and Kim Jong-un. There's a package there. It needs some modification. It's more analogous, despite the the degree of tensions, the difficulty of the issues uh, is more analogous to tweaking NAFTA or some other agreement Mm -hmm. than it is to starting... de novo with a negotiation with North Korea. I don't have any confidence the administration will pursue this path. I think that the hardliners in the administration are more likely to continue to push on the on the military option. But I just want to make the, make the case here that it does look like a very viable approach. You know, all of us who have experienced arms control negotiations over the years know that these are not one-shot processes, you know, that you build on existing agreements. And that's what I think all of us had in mind when both the The interim agreement at the end of 2013, then the comprehensive agreement in the summer of 2015 were reached. We all understood that, and we talked to the Iranians about it at the time, that we were going to have to continue to engage on some of the lingering concerns that we had about timelines, about, you know, lots of other aspects. And and I don't think that was then or is now an impossible task. We're just creating circumstances in which it's harder to imagine that kind of a conversation today. Let me just ask you guys one more question. You've been terrific. And that's the broader consequences of the Trump administration's approach to Iran, the broader consequences of withdrawing from the deal, the broader consequences of not outlining a set of asks that are reasonable, the broader consequences of distancing ourselves from our allies, whether in the Middle East or or more broadly in the world? How do you, how do you think about that, Bill? I, I have at least three concerns because I think you put your finger, Michael, on one of the central challenges today that the unilateralist impulses of President Trump creates. The first is what we were just talking about, the dangers of collisions in circumstances in which our closest partners don't trust us. 
that's going to erode the credibility of American commitments, whether it's to particular agreements or our intelligence or anything else. Second, as you also suggested, is, you know, we're widening the fissures between us and our closest allies, especially our closest European allies. In a sense, we're doing Vladimir Putin's work for him. Mm. And third and not least, I think we're eroding the utility of sanctions over time as well. You know, we haven't always used sanctions sensibly in the past. We've overused, we've sometimes abused that tool. But it's often been a very effective instrument of, you know, American statecraft. You had even the foreign minister of Germany standing up a year ago saying all of us need to reduce our vulnerability to the American financial system. This will not happen overnight. It won't happen next year, given the centrality of our financial system. But we could wake up five or six years from now and find that sanctions are no longer a very effective instrument of statecraft. And that, I think, would be deeply unfortunate. And that wouldn't happen if you used them in a multilateral setting as opposed to unilateral. Yep. Michael, I concur with everything that that Bill had to say. There's uh, already been an impact on U.S. credibility, and it's not only whether we will do what we say what we'll do, but whether it's sustainable over time. Now, one could argue that the Obama administration should have done a better job of selling the American public and the Congress on the deal. And frankly, I thought it did a pretty good job. And, and, and uh, Bill, I think you in particular and your colleagues uh, made it made a very effective case. And that persuaded, I think, the majority of the American people and, and frankly, the majority in Congress. So with this change, any deal is going to need to have a bit more of an assurance it, uh, that it is sustainable uh, if it's going to be credible. The administration has actually positioned itself in a pretty good place in, in order to be able to make that deal if it is willing to do so. And as Bill pointed out, if it is willing to give Iran something, in other words, sanctions relief, in exchange for coming back to the coming, – not just coming back to the table but doing the deal – I don't think that's the most likely course for this administration. I think strongly that it would be the best course, and it is consistent with what President Trump has said he wants to accomplish, and that he and also President Trump's clear statements that he doesn't desire a conflict with Iran. So here's what I've heard. Let me try to let me play Dennis McDonough or Tony Lincoln here <laughs> and try to sum up. This is what I've heard. Right? Is we can't let Iran get away with attacks on commercial shipping. We have to make clear to them that there's going to be a cost associated with that. But we have to have our allies on board in whatever that is at the end of the day. Two, in terms of the nuclear agreement and in terms of Iran's behavior in the world, we have to know exactly what we want. It has to be realistic. We have to know what we'd be willing to give. And again, we have to have our allies on board. And so I keep on hearing allies, 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 allies here. Did I capture that right? You did. I think it was very well said, as usual. You got it. And as we worked those two challenges, uh, the administration should take care to avoid steps that will set them back on either of them. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Michael. I just wanted to thank you both also for reminding me of what I miss most about government service, which is not sitting in the other room with no windows in the situation room. It's not impossible issues like Iran. What I always treasured most is working with people like the two of you. Absolutely. I felt the same way. It's very mutual. Thank you both. That was Bill Burns and Jim Miller. I'm Michael Morrell. This was a special edition of Intelligence Matters. Please join us next week for another regular episode. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell.
The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.